What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I'm Josh Hammer. Thanks for joining us for our debut episode. So happy to have you joining us here. So we're going to be joined shortly by Michael J. Knowles of The Daily Wire. Michael is a friend and a former colleague of mine. Used to work with him back at The Daily Wire back in the day. Have lots of fond memories of hanging out there in Los Angeles together. Michael's doing big stuff for The Daily Wire, so we're going to dive in there in just a few minutes. But before doing so, kind of just a little table setting here. So you might know me from co-hosting Newsweek's The Debate Podcast over the past uh, roughly year or so. Some of you might know me, obviously, going back to The Daily Wire, where I worked for Ben Shapiro as an editor and a writer, kind of bounced around a little bit. But we're, we're going off on our own journey here. Me and Newsweek, we're, we're going off in a conservative direction, at least me personally. And we just are so thrilled to have you along for the ride here. We're going to have a lot of great guests. We're going to bring them on in a weekly fashion for you. We're going to spruce in some monologues, some guest commentary. And what we're going to be talking about here, obviously, this is a conservative podcast. We're talking about conservatism. What is conservatism? What has conservatism been doing right? What has it been doing wrong? What has the Republican Party, which obviously is the vehicle for conservatism, what has that been doing right? What has that been doing wrong? What needs to be changed? And it's a really exciting time, obviously, to be engaged in this sort of conversation. I mean, if you kind of just go back just a few years ago, obviously, you know, 2016, Donald Trump shakes up the world, comes out of absolutely nowhere, obliterates the field in a highly contested presidential primary, slays all sorts of old orthodoxies that prove that they were way more easily destroyable than anyone had previously thought. And that period of intellectual ferment of all sorts of new thoughts, of Overton window shifting, of exploring new ideas, what is it that we, what is it that we really stand for? What do we want this to be about? How do we best form a movement? How do we best organize a political party? Ultimately, of course, for the goal of defeating the woke illiberal left and ultimately, of course, saving America. So lots of good stuff. This is kind of my my job at this point, I, I'm involved in so many of these organizations on the side doing all that I can behind the scenes, but we finally decided that it was time to kind of bring the behind the scenes to the forward facing scenes. So that is what we're all about here. We're going to have all sorts of guests that are going to talk about that. We'll talk about the theoretical, the practical, the political, all of that good stuff. So can't wait to bring you more episodes. But first, before we get to our very special guest, Michael J. Knowles, just a little bit about one big news item this week. So for those who do know me, you know that I am a lawyer by training, clerked on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, still speak at a lot of law schools, legal conferences. I've actually even published some legal scholarship, things of that nature. And this is a big week to kind of be in the legal field because, as it turns out, there is a Supreme Court vacancy. Justice Stephen Breyer, who is a decades-long liberal lion of the court, he's a, he was a Clinton nominee, former Senate Judiciary Committee staffer for, for Ted Kennedy back in the day. Stephen Breyer is, is an iconic liberal, is an iconic capital D Democrat, I would say. 
So the fact that he's retiring this term is hardly unsurprising whatsoever, of course. I mean, this is a man who was a Democrat through and through. He is an icon of kind of a boilerplate living constitutionalist jurisprudence, you might say. Obviously, there's a Democratic president. Democrats have a 50-50 bare majority in the Senate with Kamala Harris potentially casting any kind of tie-breaking vote. And based on, you know, present polling where the president is effectively, you know, more unpopular than COVID or, you know, even AIDS for that matter, we might say, Republicans seem poised to retake the Senate this fall. So it, it makes all the sense in the world for someone of Stephen Breyer's normative backgrounds for his priors to step down right now, obviously. So we finally got that retirement. That was not the surprising part. But the slightly more surprising part, at least for me, was what followed within a few hours, which is when President Joe Biden reaffirmed a 2020 presidential campaign promise that he would actually nominate a very specific, a very, very, very specific type of individual to replace Justice Breyer. That person will be the first black woman ever nominated to the United States Supreme Court. It's long overdue in my view. Where to begin? So look, I wrote my column on this this week because this is the kind of thing that really just gets my blood boiling. And that's not to say that I have any opposition whatsoever, of course, in theory, to anyone of any specific kind of background serving on the Supreme Court. Of course not. That's absolutely ridiculous. I'm Jewish myself. I mean, I, I, I you know, I've read all the all the relevant literature about how Justice um, Louis Brandeis, who was the first Jewish justice on the U.S. Supreme Court, about the abhorrent anti-Semitism that he faced from the Senate Judiciary Committee back when he was nominated so many decades ago. So I, I am the last person in the world who would object to any specific person of any background being on the court. What, what I object to, it violates the ethos. It violates what this country stands for in a very foundational level. Announcing at the outset that a jurist being nominated to uphold the U.S. Constitution and the American rule of law, which of course has the notion of equality woven into our fabric as its bedrock principle, Going back to the Declaration of Independence, of course, going back to the 14th Amendment with, with its Equal Protection Clause, going back to the Civil Rights Act of 1964, we have not always lived up to our enunciated ideals, but America's ideals have obviously always been that of a colorblind society. E pluribus unum, guys, out of many, one. Identity politics operationalized at this level, there's really no other word to say it. I mean, it is just evil. So momentarily, we're going to bring on the aforementioned Michael J. Knowles, best-selling author of Reasons to Vote for Democrats. Hint, hint, there are not that many reasons if you've checked out his book from Amazon. But Michael's a good guy. We're going to have a great conversation about conservatism and the future of our movement. So stay with us. I'm Josh Hammer. Could not be happier to have a good friend on the program today. We got Michael J. Knowles, the man, the myth, the legend. So, Michael, welcome to the Josh Hammer Show. How are you? I'm doing very well. It is an honor to be on your new show. Thanks for having me. I'm yeah. I, I, I'm so glad. I, the one thing I keep saying to myself is there aren't enough podcasts. There are just not <laughs> enough podcasts out there. But I tell you, it, given the proliferation of podcasts, I am glad that you have one because you are so on the money about so many things. Well, I appreciate my good friend. And just for the listeners, so Michael and I worked together. We were co-workers at the Daily Wire for about a year or so, have fond memories of shooting the you-know-what at this local cigar bar out there in LA, kind of reminiscing about Burke and Kirk and Oakshaw and all of our kind of like intellectual nerd out sessions. But 
Michael, you really want you on because I, th I think you and I kind of see the world in a very similar way. You know, I mean, kind of like theological differences maybe aside, but as far as like what is happening on the political right right now, I think we're basically in sync. So let's kind of kick it off just on like a higher level here. What is conservatism to you? How would you kind of define it? I saw a wonderful meme go around the internet of Edmund Burke, and it said, conservatism is owning the libs. And when you own the libs harder, you are more conservatismer or something. And uh, so I am somewhat partial to that definition. I'm more partial to Burke himself and the things that he actually said. And I'm especially partial to an answer that Roger Scruton once gave to that question, which is that conservatives, one would imagine, like to conserve things. <laughs> we, we think there are things worth conserving in society. We have an affection for our homes, for our families, for our countrymen. We have traditions, we have rituals, we have faculties of reason with which we can come to some understanding of the good and the true and the beautiful, and we wanna conserve those eternal things as well. But our politics is not purely the result of unfettered reason or some five point stupid manifesto that you can put on the back of a napkin. It's deeper than that. It's in our bones. It's in the way that we live. And, and this will offer a sturdier foundation to politics than the ideologies du jour. Uh, that, that I think is the, the beginning uh, of recognizing what conservatism might be. I suppose the beginning must be a little bit of humility, which is the beginning of wisdom. So I love that answer. And, you know, when I hear you talking about the pitfalls of unfettered reason and rationalist abstractions, you know, I can't hear or I have to hear kind of the faint echo of our mutual friend Yoram Hazoni somewhere in the background there. I'm sure he's smiling in Jerusalem listening to this conversation. But let's let's take it from there and say the post-World War II conservative movement, I think, kind of conservatism, Inc., if you will, has not always necessarily fulfilled that vision of conservatism as you've just described it and as I basically would totally subscribe to as well. Where do you think it started to go off the rails? Kind of like, take us through the intellectual history a little bit. Well, it certainly went off the rails after the Cold War. I think the fall of the Berlin Wall was the, in a way, the high mark of 20th century conservatism, but, but also it, it exposed the incoherence of so much of 20th century conservatism. And then when the various factions of the, that coalition no longer had a common enemy, then they sort of fell apart. I try to take as charitable a view as I can of the fusionist coalition that in the wake of the Second World War came together, the libertarians and the traditionalists and the war hawks all trying to fight against the iconoclasm and atheism of the Soviet Union, the collectivism, the communism of the Soviet Union, and the imperial growth of the Soviet Union. They, they had a common enemy and so they could come together. The, the most charitable view I can take of it, though, is that it was never going to last in the long run. And the reason for that is the only thing that all of the groups can agree on is that a tax cut isn't the worst thing in the world. And I agree with that. I don't think a tax cut is the worst thing in the world. I like tax cuts very much, but uh, that is not a governing philosophy. And it, it, what, what happened was that in this coalition between the conservatives and the libertarians, the libertarians would always win out public liberalism would always win out and conservatism would be relegated to the private sphere, ever more private. It went from the politics and the government all the way to the culture, whatever we mean by that, all the way to the recesses of our, of our minds. And now I don't think we're even allowed to hold conservatism there. I think now that's a thought crime for which we can be persecuted. 
No, totally. I, I, you've totally nailed it. I mean, like, from my perspective, kind of, this is the original sin, right, of, like, the post-Cold War era fusionist consensus is that whatever conservatism there is had to be kind of just privately within the confines of your home, right? It was this notion that kind of the John Stuart Mill live and let live, that, like, our, our ideas will win out in the long run if we just do our duty and go to church, go to synagogue and pass it on. But what's happened is that we've seen that liberalism is a one-way cultural ratchet, right? And that if conservatives do not kind of respond to the woke left's vision of the good, the true, and the beautiful, no matter how not good, not true, and not beautiful it may be, we're necessarily going to lose. And, I th you know, I think you and I have kind of both been kind of at the forefront in our own ways of pushing this view of conservatism, right, which we might call national conservatism, common good conservatism, the, the new right. You know, in your NACON speech in Orlando in November, you had like this funny quip about, you know, Claire Monsters, NACONs, kind of like, it's like our new, like, it's our version of identity politics, but we're all in, <laughs> within like the confines of that bubble trying to do the same thing. So what what is that thing? What is like the new right, so to speak? What are we trying to do? How would you describe it? Well, I'm, it's such an important point you've mentioned, and you alluded to it even earlier. You're saying people with huge theological differences somehow seem to agree almost entirely about politics. How is that? How is it that you, you have Jewish nationalists, Catholic integralists, American uh, traditionalists, for lack of a better term, the Straussians, the Thisians, the Thatians, the Paleos, the list goes on and on like the, the gender pronouns on the left, how, how is it that we, we all seem to be in agreement on something? Well, I think the thing we're in agreement on is that a country is a real thing, right. a real thing. A, a, a country has real borders and real people and real stuff that I can really touch. And it's not just floating in the ether. One of the mistakes I think conservatives have made in, in trying to understand how the left has destroyed the culture is we view the left as attacking primarily the spirit. We see them attacking the, the transcendent moral order and the spirit of the people. I think primarily what they're attacking is the physical world. I think they're denying the reality of, the, of phys the physical world. I think they're saying that your body doesn't matter to who you really are. You might be a man, but if you think you're a woman, you, you truly are a woman. It's not even complicated. You just are 100% a woman. If you live in Timbuktu, but you have ever read any line of Thomas Jefferson, then you're a real American. You, you're, being an American has nothing to do with citizenship or geography or family or tradition or ritual. No, it has nothing to do with that. It's just some idea floating in outer space. And what all of these different groups of people, the national conservatives, the integralists, right? You know, <laughs> the idea that national conservatives and Catholic imperialists have, have <laughs> something in common seems sort of uh, counterintuitive. But what, what they have in common is this idea that, no, it's country is a real place. Politics is a real thing that we really do with one another in community. And when you abstract that into nothingness, you, you lose anything worth conserving. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me that like we on the right and we, we not being like me and you, obviously, but kind of being like the capital C conservative capital M movement over the past three, four, five, six decades, however far back you want to go, has just forgotten what the art of politics is, right? I mean, I go back to like George Will's earlier book, I mean, Statecraft as Soulcraft. I mean, you know, I read like George Will's new columns at the Washington Post and I cringe. I mean, like George Will from 40 years ago would not look very well upon George Will in the year 2022. Right. But that's really what it is here, right? Is we're trying to learn how to actually do politics again, to not just focus on just slashing, 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 but actually building and constructing something. Of course, there's this line that we've all said plenty of times, and it's true in as far as it goes, but it's also not true. And the line is, politics is downstream of culture. 
Now, if that line means that movies are important and the news media really matter, yeah, sure, of course, that helps shape a, a polity. But, but if that means that one does not have the right to legislate morality, one does not have the right to actually engage in governance, and that one should not do it even if one could do it, well, that's manifestly insane. And by the way, the, the line between politics and culture can be a little blurry. Is Google a private company? Is Google the government? It's kind of a little bit of both. You, you actually saw it just with this OSHA ruling. A private company, the Daily Wire actually, along with a lot of other companies, sued the government to change their vaccine mandate. The Supreme Court struck down, sort of struck down the mandate. It's more complicated, but they practically struck down the mandate. Then Starbucks, a private company, sort of, decided to get rid of their private mandate. But the Supreme Court order had nothing to do with the Starbucks mandate. They just did it anyway. So what is it? Did the politics change because of the culture? In a, in a way it did. Did the culture then change because of the politics? Sure, in a way that did, that did as well. And, and really when we're talking about politics, going back to good old uncle Aristotle, we're talking about the things that we do together. Barack Obama almost had it right when he said that the government is something we all belong right, to. Right. That's a sort of dystopian and hellish way to put it. But if, if his point is that politics is how we all get along together, that's absolutely right. And conservatives have buried their heads in the sand and, and uh, pretended that, that we don't have to actually do anything in our politics and, and that politics is not intrinsically coercive. It is. We're called to do it or we surrender. Totally. And, and so much of, you know, what you and I would call right liberalism, right? I mean, this kind of notion of kind of a, a, an inner private conservatism, a private religiosity, but the refusal to kind of go out into the public and actually kind of try to legislate and ultimately really kind of enforce a certain vision and a certain orthodoxy. That obviously is kind of the fault line here. So let's just take a quick break. Again, we've got Michael Knowles here on the Josh Hammer Show, and we will be right back with you. Welcome back to the Josh Hammer Show. We've got Michael Knowles on with us today. So, Michael, let's let's take it out of the clouds a little bit. Let's try and kind of bring it down here to kind of the the more tangible, if you will. We're talking a lot about like how conservatives should actually govern, how they should actually utilize power, and these are things that I love to kind of write and think about, as I know you do. But point to me to some Republican politicians who you think currently actually think along the same lines and maybe some certain policies that actually are kind of implementing this sort of vision of governance that you and I are talking about. Well, you saw a number of Republican politicians show up to the National Conservatism Conference. I thought that was that was great news. You saw Senator Ted Cruz, who very often is lumped in more with the libertarians, but he's got some truly conservative instincts as well. Uh, you know, I think it would be an oversimplification to say he's a, just a libertarian or something. You've got Josh Hawley, who has he's been in the Senate for a shorter period of time, and he has certainly allied himself more with the, the conservative wing of the conservative movement. Uh, we had the conference in Florida, so the great Governor Ron DeSantis has certainly been governing in this way. And what does it mean? It means that you are unafraid to wield political power to effect a good and just political vision. An example of this would be kicking critical race theory out of schools. Glenn Youngkin just did this in, in Virginia. Kicking critical race theory out of schools and kicking radical gender theory out of schools should be the absolute baseline yep. for conservative governance. That teachers can't tell your five-year-old boy that he's really a little girl. I mean, that should be basic stuff. And yet there are some squishes. I'm thinking of Asa Hutchinson in Arkansas, Republican governor. I'm thinking of of Christy Nome, although she's reversed course on this now. Christy Nome up in South Dakota was 
was unwilling to go all the way on this and, and kick boys out of girls' sports entirely. Well, what they would say is, listen, this is something for the culture to decide. Well, who am I to judge? Well, if a man wants to pretend he's a woman, as long as he doesn't scare the horses in the street, that's none of my business. And I think what the new conservatives who are really just the old conservatives are saying is, no, I actually can tell the difference between a man and a woman. I actually can tell men that they shouldn't mutilate themselves to try to look more like women. I actually can, I'm a taxpayer. I have my kids. I have some right to raise my own children. I, I can kick books out of the curriculum. There's no such thing as a totally open curriculum. You only have so many weeks in the semester. You can only read so many books. Every second you waste reading Robin DiAngelo's crap is a second that you're not reading Shakespeare or Chaucer. So you know what we're going to do? We're going to impose limits. Not only is conservatism about limits, not only is our world that we live in about limits, but liberty itself is about limits. There's no such thing as liberty without limits. And, and that is a much more coherent conservatism. It's not reinventing the wheel, folks. This is what conservatives believed until about five minutes ago. And something has just gone off the rails in the past few decades. I'm so happy you mentioned the critical race theory thing. So I was, I was recently out of Missouri. I had two Federal Society talks, one in Jefferson City at the state capitol, and, and then one in University of Missouri at the law school, both on critical race theory and education. And you know, my de facto role within like the federal society circles when it comes to critical race theory is just to say, just ban it. Like this is evil and ban it. Like don't overthink this. It's racism. Just ban it. Like this notion that public education, this notion that really anything is a quote unquote true enlightenment, liberal, Voltaire, marketplace of ideas is almost always just an illusion and total nonsense. It is obviously uniquely an illusion in the context of public education. It's just totally crazy. So I'm really happy you mentioned that. A kind of like related concept, though, would be kind of just the public-private distinction in general, right? I mean, I think kind of NatCon's kind of um, part of the new right crew likes to kind of blur the lines there because we see that the, that the private is really never truly the private. I think a lot of like libertarians might kind of, you know, grimace at that. But interesting, you know, I'm here in Florida. I'm here in, in Miami. And Governor DeSantis, you know, was one of the leading governors on the VAX mandate issue to actually say that if you are a private employer, then you cannot require your employees to be vexed. And obviously, you know, a lot of a certain brand of like right liberal libertarian will say, you know, like every business, every enterprise to each unto his own. Where do you come down on that? How do you think our principles apply to that one? The difference between the public and the private is uh, numbers, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm private when I am alone myself. And the moment that I'm interacting with any other person, I'm, I'm addressing some sort of public question. Some questions are more public than others. But this is why, because we are not atomized individuals. This is why, because we do live in a society. This is why, because we're not born floating in outer space, but we're actually born to a family with obligations, with duties, with loyalties. Man is, is never engaging in an action that is truly private. Even if he's on a desert island, someone's watching. That big guy upstairs is watching too. And we have obligations to the moral order, to ourselves and to our society. If you have a society that, when they are quote unquote in public, tries to behave very well, but in private is mired in vice and sin and corruption and hedonism, you're not going to maintain that good public sphere very long. In, in this way, there is really no such thing as a private sin. This was once understood in the West that, and actually it still is articulated by the Catholic Church and, and other more serious religious thinkers, they'll say, the moment that I sin, 
I am not just harming myself or the person I'm directly sinning against, I'm really harming society. This is how John Milton explains the fall. He says, with the disobedience in the Garden of Eden, sin pervades the world. And as sin pervades the world, death pervades. And it's just kind of there and it's just in the ether. And so we, we cannot have a society in which people are allowed to do whatever they want, whatever base passions they want to follow in their quote unquote private lives and not have that bleed out into the public. That, that is not possible. That is licentiousness, <laughs> which, is, which is contrary to liberty. The founding fathers knew this, they said it explicitly. And I don't know, somewhere in the 1970s or 80s, we seem to have forgotten it. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, it was Frank Meyer, you know, the one who kind of gave us fusionism. If you, I mean, you know, he himself, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think Frank Meyer was born Jewish, convert to Catholicism, but his brand of social conservatism was exactly what you and I are talking about in this podcast. It's like a privately held, or don't go out there, don't legislate it, just try to do your private duty to pass it on. He, he, he wanted nothing to do whatsoever with kind of a public facing, like genuinely conservative agenda. But Let's let's shift gears slightly here to political economy, which I think is really interesting, right? So I think for like decades and decades, like laissez-faire, free markets, neoliberalism, free trade, like that that has been kind of the standard conservative boilerplate response, obviously. But you know, I think especially in the year twenty twenty two, I mean, you know, we look back at COVID, we look back at kind of the early stages of the pandemic with the supply chain issues and the masks and China hoarding this up. I think a lot of people are starting to come around to the idea that, you know, maybe like Nixon's visit to Chairman Mao, maybe that whole like China ascending to the WTO thing, maybe this kind of notion of just like free trade, free markets, all this kind of absolutism run amok, maybe not a great idea. So I'm curious over the course of the pandemic, have your thoughts on kind of political economy and what our actual economic policy should look like? Has that, has that shifted at all? Certainly, and probably a little earlier than the pandemic and the lockdowns too. China destroying the world didn't didn't help anything in this regard. But uh, yes, Chesterton made this point, I think in orthodoxy, which is that the modern world is not evil because it's so bad, but in many ways, because it's far too good. It's not because it has vices running amok, but, but because it has virtues that are run amok, that have been isolated from one another and are wandering alone. I, I think this way with markets. Markets are a wonderful thing. Markets are conducive to economic growth. They can be conducive in, in properly understood to social stability, but markets are not an end unto themselves. Yep. Free trade is not an end unto itself. GDP is not an end unto itself. And when you make an idol out of it, you, you totally throw your society out of whack. The purpose of trade, the purpose of markets is for, for the good of your society, for the common good of your society and to have a, a good country. And, and when you start to really compromise your society, corrupt your society and ship all of your manufacturing overseas and totally sell classes of your own citizens down the river, all in the pursuit of a little bit more GDP and some slightly cheaper electronic goods, well, then something has gone seriously wrong. And, and it, there, it never quite made sense on the right that every Republican speech would begin with the importance of tradition and family and stable communities and would end with the wonders of creative destruction and how we need to ship everything to the other side of the world because that's gonna make us all a little bit richer. On the one hand, we need to make sure that we serve our God and our communities and our country. On the other hand, we just need to serve mammon above all else. That was incoherent. <laughs> it was always bound to break. And I, I think it has broken now. No, it totally has. I mean, like, but if you go back not that far, 
conservatives understood this. I mean, Irving Crystal, two cheers for capitalism. I mean, I don't know exactly when the pendulum shifted. I mean, maybe it really was around the time of China's ascension to the World Trade Organization in 2001, 2002, kind of like Bush era, maybe. I'm, I'm, I'm not really sure, honestly. But what kind of like specific economic policies would you like to see conservatives more like forthrightly put out there as far as kind of tax and spending and things like that? You know that conservatives were accused of colluding with the Russians in 2016, and this was a completely spurious charge, and it was preposterous. And my reaction to that discovery was, perhaps we should collude with the Russians. You know, the Russians, <laughs> not just, not just the right, they make beautiful cathedrals. They And what one thing that they have done, I'm, I'm not suggesting that we become best buddies with Vladimir Putin, though there are, there are some arguments for playing Russia off of China. So that perhaps for another discussion. One thing that Putin has done and Viktor Orban has done in Hungary is they have actually stopped the bleeding on their declining birth rate. Yes. Their birth rate has actually ticked up a little bit. Uh, we were told this could not be done. We were told here in the United States, because we, we've tried to do the same thing with child tax care credits and a number of other generally neoliberal policies that were acceptable to the prevailing establishment. Well, it didn't work. Our population is still collapsing. And that's one of the reasons that we import so many migrants every single year. And that increases the social stability. And you can see how this spirals unto itself. Uh, well, something worked for Hungary. Something worked for Russia. I'm not saying we do exactly what they did, because I think some of what they did is bioethically a little bit compromised. But there are policies where you can say, look, we are going to pay people to have kids. We're going to give you special privileges if you have a lot of kids or adopt a number of kids even. You could craft public policy in this way that would, I think, make the leftists shriek. It would make the libertarians clutch their pearls. But you can't have a country if your population is dying. And so it, it seems to me that would be one problem that we need to fix before we start talking about the others. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's such common sense, right? But the problem is you and I both know is that anytime, you know, someone on the right starts talking about family policy or payments to families or expanding the child tax credit or really doing anything whatsoever to kind of adjust the tax code to incentivize something as basic and prosaic as family formation, you know, we've got like, uh, I don't want to name names, but I mean, I guess I will. I mean, we've got like the Nikki Haley types. We're going to start calling you like a socialist Marxist. And the pejoratives just start to... I've always to, thought of you as a Marxist. I could tell <laughs> deep down, I saw... I don't know what gave it away. I must have been, you know, talking about Trotsky at the Sherman Oaks Los Angeles Cigar Bar a couple of years ago or something. <laughs> or something. Um, Michael, are you, are, are you optimistic about kind of like the future of our movement? I mean, do you think like the ideas that you and I are talking about, or do you see that kind of taking hold? Is, is it starting to accelerate, you think? Very much so. I, I'm, I'm really... I, I have not been this hopeful about conservatism in my entire life. Now, I'm damning with faint praise, but nonetheless, the big shift that we've been describing beyond the wonderful philosophers that we love, beyond the shift in certain types of policy, beyond the geostrategic realignment is a very simple shift from an obsession with procedural norms to a discussion of substantive goods. Any serious political movement needs to have some sense of substantive goods, not merely the procedure of the freedom of speech or the freedom of belief or the free academic freedom or any other kind of freedom pie in the sky. But the question, what do we say? What do we believe? What do we teach to our children? What should we do? What, what is our vision? Freedom of speech in the abstract means absolutely nothing to people who don't have anything to say. And for basically the first time in my life, the conversation on the right is focused on the nature of those goods that we want rather than merely how we can get them. The, the fact that we need to outlaw abortion nationwide, done, 
punto e basta, finish, rather than merely saying, I, I don't, listen, if New York wants to kill a bunch of babies every year, that's fine. That's their choice. That's the way democratic government works there. No, I don't think so. I don't think they have any right to do that. And I think we need to go in and use the full force of the state and outlaw it. And, and we can use the culture and the private enterprise to do that too. But, but I'm not going to be satisfied with some shift in the way our procedure works, our formal politics works. I want substantive ends as well. The national abortion thing is such a good example, too. I mean, I was at my law school alma mater, University of Chicago, about two or three months ago. I was, I was debating the proposition that the 14th Amendment actually bans abortion nationally. And, you know, the, the, one of the citations that I like to make for that is, you know, Abraham Lincoln in his 1854 Peoria speech. He, I'm paraphrasing here, but he famously says the relevant question, you know, and he's kind of being very prescient here because four years later, he would basically debate Douglas on these exact questions. He said the relevant question is not whether you have a majority to kind of bestow rights upon the Negro. The relevant, and this is his words, Negro, the relevant question is whether the Negro is or is not a man. Once you sufficiently answer that question, everything else is necessarily downstream of that. And it just seems to me so obvious that the abortion debate is basically the exact same thing. So why don't we kind of close on this note, because you mentioned the free speech issue, which I think is yet another issue where you and where you and I see eye to eye. But I think our view is still a severe minority view, even among kind of the right of center. So what is that view? How do you approach kind of questions of free speech? And what would be your basic kind of elevator pitch to kind of our more kind of free speech absolutist friends? I may not agree what you have to say, but I will kill you if you say <laughs> that is my that's my change on the more popular slogan. Uh, speech necessarily has limits. This is true in every single state. This is certainly true in the history of the United States. There are plenty of things that people were not allowed to say for most of our, actually, including today, we've had obscenity laws. You can't, you can't engage in obscene speech. Obviously, laws against fraud, direct threats, fighting words. The list goes on and on. You, you have had laws against blasphemy for, for much of the history of the United States. That would be unthinkable now, but it was perfectly well understood by the founding fathers, by, by people in earlier American history. So why is that? How on earth did these people who enshrined free speech in the Bill of Rights, how did they have so many limits on speech? Because they recognized that liberty has limits, because they warned that liberty cannot be abused to licentiousness, or you're going to lose the whole thing. Language itself contains limits, because if a word means one thing, it doesn't mean the other thing. If we use one word to refer to somebody, then we're not going to use its opposite. If a man, I'm using the archaic definition of man, as in not a woman, if man now means also a woman, then that is, that is the new demarcation of that phrase. And if we're going to have a society, we need a common language. So, so those limits matter as well. I, I think you're right that our view remains a minority view when you articulate it in this very direct, blunt way. But I think when you get down to the particulars of it, hey, do we really think that teachers should be allowed to say this to your kid? Right. Hey, do we really think, I, I think a lot more people actually agree with us. And I think, I think it's because, what is the, the line of Roger Scruton's? He says, the job of a conservative intellectual is to articulate the things that normal people just know intuitively. Well, on that very optimistic note, I think we're going to have to call it here. So, Michael, obviously, we'd love to have you back on any other time. Always good to chat with you, my friend. A pleasure and an honor as always. I look forward to listening to the rest of the show. All right. Take care. So that was Michael J. Knowles. And look, you know, the reality is that Michael and I, I think, are two of the guys out there, guys and gals out there, I should say, who 
have no real compunctions taking on outmoded orthodoxies, who have no real hesitation calling it like we see it when it comes to the things that the various institutions of the conservative movement of the past 40, 50, 60, however many years have often told us is the way that we are supposed to think about X, Y, Z subjects. Again, you know, at the at the beginning of the show, we talked about kind of all this post-Trump, post-2016 intellectual ferment. We're kind of still in the wilderness trying to figure out where we're going to land here as to what it is that we as a movement, we as a party, what we stand for in this ultimate grand fight against the left and the fight to ultimately save and restore America to the great country that it was and can once again be in the future here. And I think you've heard a lot of that just in this brief conversation that Michael and I had, you know, whether it's on the free speech issue, you know, I mean, for decades and decades, we were told that, you know, to be a conservative on free speech is, you know, you have to support everything. I mean, you got to support everything under the sun here. I mean, I think back to the Citizens United Supreme Court case of 2010, where Anthony Kennedy, who admittedly not much of a conservative, but here he, he was writing for a conservative majority where he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, he said that it is our custom and our tradition that the solution to speech is always more speech, not less. And, you know, I think people kind of accepted that as conservatism for decades and decades. But Michael's challenging that. I have challenged that in my own way as well. And that's obviously just one example, right? When it comes to big tech regulation. I mean, big tech, these tech platforms, Twitter, Facebook, these are the modern 21st century day equivalent to the public square, okay? You know, think back to like Thomas Paine, guys. Think back to Thomas Paine in 1776 when he had his pamphlet, Common Sense, when he was kind of running around the Philadelphia town square trying to rile up the revolutionaries. You know, if you or I were to go to like our local park in the town or the city and start running around with like a pamphlet or an essay, someone would say like, you know, call the insane asylum, like lock this dude up. Like what is wrong with him? That's not, that's obviously like not how we do it in the year 2022. The way to get a thought out there to kind of throw paint at the wall, throw mud at the wall, see what sticks is to put it on social media. That is our public square here. So the fact that these are quote unquote private companies, by the way, private companies that have been given ridiculous legal leeway and all sorts of kind of extra legal immunity provisions. I'm, I'm speaking here about, of course, section 230 and some of the other kind of arcane laws that get brought up in the big tech fight sometimes, they're really not fundamentally that private at the end of the day because they're hosting what is fundamentally a public conversation. So again, you know, whether it's speech, tech, political economy, which Michael and I touched on here, obviously for decades and, you know, really with 30, 40 years now, I think conservatives have kind of imbibed kind of like a, an absolutist version of Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, free market absolutism, let the chips fall where they may. It is imprudent, is impractical and imprudent, I should say, for a statesman to try to put his or her thumb on the scale and say that, no, some industry is actually better than others here. You kind of think back to that George H.W. Bush era White House clip. I can't remember exactly who it was, but someone in the Bush 41 White House famously said, oh, computer chips or potato chips, what's the difference, right? He's, he's speaking here about kind of like free trade absolutism. Well, there actually is a huge difference. One is a consumable good that is not particularly good for you. And the other is indispensable for national security. So like it is totally reasonable for economic policy to reflect that. So these are the sorts of things here that I think conservatives are thinking about in real time. Michael was a great guy to have on the show here. We wanted him on to give his perspective. I think he and I are largely on the same page, but we're going to bring a whole lot of other conversations exactly like that to you over the ensuing weeks and months. And Thank you again for just joining us for this pilot episode. We hope that you stay with us on this journey. I'm Josh Hammer, and we'll see you next time.